Ryan Stanton here with ASEP Frontline, uh, joined by another close friend uh, here at the Emerald Coast Conference, um, uh, board member with me on the American College of Emergency Physicians, but also uh, one of the, guess, one of the uh, best sources, deep divers of an institutional knowledge for the uh, college. So always somebody we turn to very closely, Dr. Uh, Anthony Cirillo or Tony Cirillo. And, um, uh, welcome here to the front line with me. You've gotten here a few days of sun down here, done a fair amount of educating and updating. And yeah, and that, Ryan, thank you for the opportunity. And first of all, that's the nicest way anybody's ever said I'm old, to say I'm the source of institutional memory. I love that. That's well, no, well <laughs> and the fact you do such deep dives into things that that's, you know, it's one of those that's, well, and there's a few people, you know, that, that on the board that, if there's a misplaced punctuation 48 pages into a document you find it and you're like holy smokes that's that is the attention to detail that not only is provided success but also is what we need uh, to ensure that you know with the, the volume of information and things that we deal with uh, but having that deep dive um, Allison Haddock is, is another one that, that, you know, that misplaced colon versus semicolon. We always talk about it in the meetings that sounds like there needs to be a semicolon there. I think the greatest thing about the board is that we all have our strengths. And I, I know there are certain topics. So when, you know, we start talking about EMS, uh, I know you and, you and Jeff Goodlow have, our, have us covered, right? And so I don't, I don't do the deep dive on those, right? I, I do the peripheral and make sure I know what the policy says. But I trust you guys, you guys are the experts on that. So every once in a while, I know that there's maybe a policy that, that really is not within anybody's specific wheelhouse, and so I'll spend a little more time going through that. And if that helps the board and helps us move forward, uh, I feel good about that. Well, and every time you, and any time you go to one of the meetings, uh, Rhode Island is missing 50% of its emergency positions, correct? <laughs> Um, we we, make, we, we have a, a small, but, small but mighty chapter. We actually have over 200 members in the chapter. So uh, we're, we're very fortunate. We have two residencies uh, in Rhode Island. We have the Brown-based uh, residency. And we also have the uh, Kent County Hospital-based residency. So for a very small state, you know, with only 12 acute care hospitals, we have two residencies. So, uh, so we're doing everything we can to make sure they all uh, understand the value of ASAP and how we're looking out for their future. Uh, so it works out well in little Rhode Island, little yeah, Rhode we, we always make those uh, little, little small state. Of course, I'm, I'm from Kentucky, so there's never a shortage of opportunities to jab at a number of our practices. But, um, you know, just that, that small state, but you're absolutely correct. For, for the size state, uh, to have the amount of participation, membership, uh, training, education, and actually you know, great leaders has been uh, really impressive. But down here at Emerald Coast Conference, uh, coming as far south as we can uh, basically come down, um, you're talking uh, about some of the management of the uh, behavioral health, acute mental health illnesses within our emergency department. So give us a little uh, background on that and we'll roll into it. Yeah, so I think Ryan, you know, more and more, I don't think any one of us who are practicing today uh, does not feel the challenge of taking care of patients with mental illness in the ED. Um, we know that over the past few years, particularly with the pandemic, uh, what we already knew was challenging and difficult has become really epidemic. Uh, and mostly the thing I worry most about is about our kids and our tweens and our teens, the, those kids who are coming in 
uh, with unprecedented levels of not just anxiety, but real depression, suicidality, uh, to a degree where we really, I think everybody's kind of taken a step back and maybe noticed it really for the first time. So down here, I, you know, I tried to present some statistics and really it's interesting as we've navigated through in the past few weeks some real tough issues about uh, firearm violence. Uh, and I know that that was a big thing about, you know, stay in your lane. And we all within the EM community said, you're damn right that's our lane. Uh, I would say that, you know, the issue of mental illness and behavioral health is not only in our lane, but it's in our home every day, right? These are patients who are coming to us every day who are taking more and more, uh, um, I think they're giving us more and more of an opportunity to fix a system. Uh, you know, a few years back I gave a talk, uh, you know, about how I saw that this was playing out and I challenged us as a specialty to say, it's great that you want to pat yourself on the back for getting, you know, somebody to the cath lab in 29 minutes. Good for us. But there's a nine-year-old who's been in a nine-by-nine -nine room for nine days. We, we, we're, what are we doing? Right? So, so be proud about what we do well, but let's take ownership of what we're not doing so well. And I would say particularly today, I had a conversation with one of the residents who's down here from the UAB program. And look, if you want to make change in your department, uh, if you want to decrease the door to cath lab time from 29 to 27 minutes, that's nice. Uh, that, that's not changing the world. You want to figure out a better way to take care of that nine-year-old so that they only spend maybe nine hours instead of nine days in your department, you are making monumental change, not just in that kid's life, but in their family's lives, and honestly, in how your department operates. So I think there's huge opportunities for us to stand up and say, hey, this is a problem that we own, we can do a better job, and no one's going to fix this unless we bring it to their attention. And with the, and actually this is a discussion, I almost gave the exact same uh, example. Uh, we're talking about the response and, and you know, with, we're just, we're rolling off now uh, another school shooting down in Texas and uh, we've, we're talking about the response and of, of course there's a lot of emotion on both sides uh, of everything and, and being the American College of Emergency Physicians, we represent um, physicians from the full spectrum of political viewpoints, uh, pro-gun, pro anti-gun and everything in between. And so really the advocacy point for us is patient safety and how do we improve patient safety. You know, vehicles can be dangerous, uh, but how do we promote safety with proper seat belts, proper restraints for children, uh, airbags, uh, not decreasing distractions, things of that nature. Promoting um, an activity that has, has some risk to it, how do we promote the highest level of safety? And so with this situation, um, you know, everybody's really laser focused on the firearm, but from us in emergency medicine, and we, we just talked about the same thing. We've got, you've got a cath lab that I end up in meetings if I don't have somebody there in you know 30 minutes to 60 minutes, and you know the ballooned up and done in 90 minutes. Um, if I don't have a CT scan done on a in red on a stroke patient in 20 to 25 minutes, but there's meetings. Uh, if I don't get antibiotics on a patient within one to three hours, there are meetings and there are things that come to you. And yet we have young people. Uh, children and adolescents around this country spending you know, hours, if not days, if not weeks, if not months in emergency departments waiting for beds. And so, you know, unfortunately, in, in a healthcare system where we very much focus on value on procedures, 
the procedure side of medicine is, is where there's a lot of money, in many ways that leaves behind and ignores pediatrics from a general pediatrics. If you're a pediatrician out there like my wife is, you're, you know, you're still making, you still may be making barely over resident pay um, to see these children and take care of our future. And a significant, you know, our, our mental health system in this country is much smaller and, and much less robust than it needs to be, um, but especially in the pediatric. And in fact, this is going to be an interesting tie-in because we were just, I was just sitting here talking with, with Dr. Goodlow about hyperactive delirium and some of the behavioral health standpoints on the first responders and frontline. Here we're talking about this in the emergency department and actually coming up later today talking uh, with Dr. Girardi about emergency psychiatry as a potential expansion of the realm and profession of emergency medicine. And so it's really going to tie all together, but that is huge. And we kind of saw, we saw it coming. Um, if, if you've been listening to the podcast uh, out there, we've talked to a number of people throughout the COVID pandemic on the mental health stress. We knew that there was increases in domestic violence, substance abuse. Uh, we've seen the opioid epidemic. We've now crossed 100,000 overdose deaths annually in the United States. And it was protective from a, there was a feeling that it was protective from a suicidality standpoint because we are all, quote, suffering together. But as we come out of COVID, there was concern that there we'd, we'd see a significant spike in suicidality, especially among young people because of the stress and, and feeling of being left behind. And I think we're starting to see a lot of that now. And, you know, that's something that we're going to see in that, in the emergency department. So give us some of those statistics and framework of what we're dealing with with regard to this topic in the emergency department and of course uh, in response to anything I said as well. Yeah, so I, I would just say, Ryan, you know, everything that you just laid out, you know, is, um, you know, is, you point out all the challenges, but what I want, I really want to emphasize is that in the history of emergency medicine, every time we bumped up against something where we all just kind of shook our head and said, that's not the right way to take care of those patients. We've changed the system, right? For, for again, I'll, being the person who give, what was it, historic, institutional history? Institutional you know, knowledge. Yeah, there was a time when we used to have to wait for the cardiologist to come over from the office to read the EKG to tell us that the patient was really having a STEMI before we could do anything about it. And we just said, well, that's ridiculous, right? We are just delaying the appropriate care of those patients. And so we forced the change in the system. And so I'm going to say for mental illness, it's very difficult to get changes in the mental illness behavioral health system because those people who are affected are often the ones who are least heard. And so I will double challenge you that not only is there really uh, a selfish reason to, to help improve the care of patients with mental illness because it will improve how your department operates, but you are really their voice. And when that nine-year-old cannot advocate for themselves from inside that nine-by-nine nine room, it's not possible. And their parents, I'm going to also double, triple challenge you, I guess, to be very mindful of families of kids with mental illness. Those families are already being very much stressed by the fact that their kids are sick. And I would, for those of you who are parents, think about how bad you would feel if your kid fell down and broke their arm, right? You feel bad because they're in pain and they're hurting. And yet, that's a very easy thing for, to, quote, get fixed. And you can do, quote, the right thing to make it better. And in most cases, you had nothing to do with the, the badness, the pain in the first place. For parents of kids with mental illness, there's this really this layer of guilt and the sense of not only am I making it worse, am I doing the right thing and getting the right care, 
but maybe am I part of the reason why my kid feels that way? So it is a very complicated and very emotional um, moment for parents to get to the point where they feel they have to ask for someone else to help take care of their kids because they feel like they can't do it at that point and they're afraid. So be mindful of parents and families. They are, they are really also part of this ripple effect when, it, when a child in particular uh, is in crisis. A and uh, I will challenge you all that there are seven different types of stigma uh, associated with mental illness. The one that, I, that we own is number seven, which is the healthcare uh, professional stigma. There's no cone of silence at the nursing desk. So I would offer to you, be very careful about what you say and how you talk about patients with mental illness because everybody hears us. And if you are not respectful and professional and caring, you are sending a message as the captain of the team that it's okay for everybody else to not behave that way either. Uh, on the other hand, you can raise the level of care and respect and dignity by how you manage your behavior. So the challenge about mental illness is nobody really wants to talk about it. It's very difficult, it's, multi it's very complex. But if we're going to improve the system, and there are lots of models out there now about how the system can improve, we still have to own this. Because like everything else in emergency medicine and healthcare, we see where all the breaks are in the system, right? We live them every day, right? If the system worked perfectly, nobody would ever get sick, nobody would ever get hurt, nobody would ever come to the ED. We wouldn't have a job. I think we'd all be happy about that. But the reality is, is we see, we see where the system has cracks and breaks and fails people, but that means we own that and we have a responsibility to then advocate for making the system better. Uh, in terms of numbers, Ryan, one out of every five adults in this country suffers from mental illness. You know, 13% of kids suffer from mental illness. Um, these are not small numbers. Uh, and again, if I told you uh, in your ED today, one out of every, let's say, eight patients who was coming in was coming in with a, an orthopedic complaint, you would make sure you had the resources to take care of them, right? You'd make sure you had all the right splints and you had referrals and you, you would create a system to take care of those those patients, and yet one out of every patient coming in today is coming in with a mental illness crisis-related complaint, and yet, as you've described, the system has so little resources. We, we have to own that and become the best advocates and champions to fix it. And we saw for so many years this contraction, uh, even though there was a growth in the need, uh, contraction of bed spaces, disposition spaces. Uh, most states um, have very limited access for pediatric and adolescent psychiatry in terms of inpatient beds, um, significant limitations on the age range. And there's a lot of good reasons for, for having the limitation separation. I mean, we don't want a, a nine-year-old and a, you know, a 35-year-old you know, right next to each other. I mean, there's always the complications right there. But um, there, there are reasons, but at the same time, um, the, the supply of bed spaces has not kept up uh, by any stretch with the growing demand uh, that we're seeing out there, and we're continuing to see with the, with the challenges uh, that are faced with uh, with children and, uh, and adolescents and adults as we move as they move through this a very complicated and challenging world. So much information and the processing, and you think about young, you know, having a 14-year-old and a 12-year-old myself, you know, having young folks dealing with all of that information, but not necessarily having the brain development to the point that can process and place the 
the importance and, and stratify and, and work through a lot of these things, and especially when you're dealing with something that was new for adults too, a COVID pandemic. None of us had ever dealt with a pandemic. And so we are challenged with that, the loss of jobs, the stress, uh, the illness, the loss of family members, all of those things. It's really hard to process. And so what are some of those things that we can do as emergency physicians? Now there's, there's larger scale, and in fact, that's one of the biggest things uh, we've, we've at, been advocating for uh, last several years, last number of years, is for improved access uh, to behavioral health care, but that takes time. What can we do today to help improve access and to take care of these patients? So I would say um, to everything that you just described, uh, Ryan, in terms of that things have gotten worse during the pandemic, I will say one of the only good things about the pandemic is that at least there has now been a recognition by particularly national legisl federal legislators. So the Senate Health Committee, there's a bipartisan House Committee, the administration, the Surgeon General, everybody has said, we get it. We understand this is now a huge problem. This is really an epidemic. When that happens, there's, an op there's a window of opportunity. So I would say, again, even within your ED, uh, your C-suite, your community, and with your legislators, both at the state and federal level, now is the time to just I will say pick up the phone or send a text or send an email or a carrier pigeon or whatever you use, but, but make your voice heard because change comes when there's crisis and opportunity, but there also has to be a reason for legislators to do things like change the level of funding, right? To your point, Ryan, part of the challenge is that particularly at state level, the agency that usually is responsible for making sure there's appropriate inpatient care is usually somewhere in the Medicaid world. Well, like the, every Medicaid budget is really, really challenged, and so they're reprioritizing where to spend money every day. But they're also the people who are overseeing whether there's appropriate capacity. And so they have a, I will say, a motivation not to really shine a light on how bad the system is, because ultimately that light's gonna reflect back on them. But, but that means you as a, as a taxpayer, you as a healthcare professional, you have to raise your voice and say, look, I'm telling you, if you're gonna start reprioritizing money in Medicaid, here's where it needs to go. Maybe some of the funding that's come to the states from COVID um, should go to improving the capacity for mental health. You can just use your voice. So that's an important one to start with. I think the other one is with the C-suite because your voice as the emergency physician is very important, but you know that your C-suite has some standing in the community. And so if you're gonna get recognition from businesses um, who ultimately help us because they can put pressure on insurance companies. So when the local businesses say to the insurance companies, hey, look, you gotta provide more, more funding for mental illness. That's what, my, that's what my employees need. That's what their families need. Again, that helps to create the pressure to create change. Um, from the individual patient point of view, I was just this morning as I was walking through the exhibit hall here, got kind of sidetracked by one of the attendees, one of the docs. And he told me a story of a 12-year-old that was brought to the ED while he was on duty by a mom, single mom, um, because she was concerned because the 12-year-old had out in the backyard taken like a, a barbecue tool like that was long and had put it up against his brother's eight-year-old throat on the ground and was pinning him down and brought in the ring, showed the doc the ring video of this happening and the doc called, said, look, this is like, this is dangerous behavior. And basically tried to get the patient, the 12 year old to be seen by behavioral health and kept getting the, it's just a behavioral issue. They can call the police. 
or, well, he's never been evaluated, so this is really not, there's no pattern of behavior. And, and as I went through the story with the doc, basically what it came down to is that the rest of the system right now is so stressed that everybody's willing to say, you don't need me. He doesn't need behavioral health intervention. When the clear answer was, based on the video, he absolutely needed behavioral health intervention. So the doc said to me, so what should I do? And I said, you gotta raise that, you gotta raise the, go to your CMO. You gotta get your CMO involved, and you gotta say, look, I'm not, I don't think this is appropriate. Just like we would if somebody came in with a STEMI, and imagine if the cardiologist said, I don't care they're having a STEMI, I don't think, I don't wanna take them to the cath lab. What would you do? You would basically say, look, I disagree with your clinical judgment, and I wanna do the right thing for the patient, so I'm gonna raise the ante on this one. I, I said to the doc, that's what you do next time. Because until it's other people feel that they have ownership of this besides just you and the ED, it will get, be hard to get change. But once you get other people to go, wow, I had no idea, or what do you mean they wouldn't see them, right? Now, now the CMO and the C-suite will feel like, hey, we own this as well, and they can help be better advocates for change. And I feel like a, we hear that a lot, uh, and that's the challenge with you know, with, with the behavioral health resources, they are stretched so thin that, you know, it really is, there's only so much water a bucket can hold before it's gonna start overflowing. And so in, in that case, it may not be, and it likely is not that, that they didn't want to see the child, it's just they didn't have the bandwidth and ability on something like this that didn't have a clear active current threat, which clearly there was at that moment and likely needed to be dug into but that, that sheer bandwidth to be able to manage that at this point. And, that's, and that really is the challenge because it, like I, I work at a community hospital um, that does not have inpatient behavioral health resources. So we have behavioral health resources kind of coordinated between our uh, hospital system um, that comes through and talks to them and, and works through things. Of course, it's a long process, but I've worked at a hospital before that was inpatient, that had inpatient behavioral health, kind of the behavioral health aspect for the city there. And you know you had people in the ED, and, and both had their strengths, and both had their weaknesses and challenges. And um, you know it's one of those things that, uh, unfortunately, though, uh, it even sounds like talking about that situation, that child is, is we tend to wait until it, almost like the Titanic with the iceberg. Instead of saying, you know what, there's some warning signs here. We're going to be in the North Atlantic. It's pretty cold. We should slow down. Waiting until after and hitting the iceberg and saying, oh wait, we should have slowed down because the iceberg. And I feel like a lot of times, especially with pediatrics, and, I, and it's so challenging with child, once that, again, that gets imprinted, once that becomes the norm for that brain, it is so hard to bring that back around as opposed to providing those resources and working. And I think we're seeing some changes within schools uh, and resources and things available, but we still have a long way to go. I will say, and that's all true, Ryan. I would say the other thing that we own a little bit, if you say, well, what can I do better today? Uh, just like we figured out how to do ultrasound and said we don't need to rely on the radiologist to do point-of-care ultrasound, um, we, we've not been as, we've not owned the world of behavioral health and particularly the pharmacology of behavioral health as much as we can in emergency medicine. So I, I hear plenty of docs go, well, look, I, you know, those are psych meds. I, I don't know anything about psych meds. And I'm like, what, like, did you learn about cardiology meds? Like, you, you learned how to take care of cardiology meds because you were taking care of cardiology patients. Um, it, and yes, some of them are more, more long-term, but there are also short-term strategies for using medications. And we all can be much better at 
learning how to more acutely manage those patients um, and more effectively managing them early on. So early intervention, early de-escalation, and honestly, early medication therapy, even if it's oral therapy in the ED, have all been shown to reduce lengths of stay, reduce the need for admission to inpatient facility, and actually just reduces resource use across the board. So it's one of those things where I think we all gotta take our foot off the dock uh, and just jump in the boat a little bit. Um, but learning about the pharmacology of psychiatric medications is no harder than any other pharmacology. There's plenty of courses and resources out there. So I, I don't like when docs go, well, I don't know about them. I'm like, well, that's a you problem, right? So like you, you know all the other medications, but you don't know one, one disease worth of medications? Come on. Um, I think owning the fact that getting to those patients and sitting down with them early, although we often don't think of them as needing urgent or emergent intervention, the reality is, is if you go and sit down with those patients and you talk with them for five minutes, when they first come in, you have a much greater chance of successfully managing them back to the point where they can leave your department, which is really the goal, which is to get them hooked up with the resources or de-escalated and helping your department. You know, again, another great thing you can do is go advocate for de-escalation training for everybody in the ED. There's nothing, imagine you're the patient and the first thing that happens is you get securitized, which means you get stripped naked, you get put in paper pajamas, your phone gets taken away, and then you get put onto a stretcher in the middle of an open hallway where all of your dignity is removed. How, how is that therapeutic in any way, shape, or form? And so there's a lot of stuff that we do in the, in the name of, well, we're just gonna keep them safe, but I truly believe that our role is more than just to keep them safe. Our, jo our job, like every other patient who comes in, is to try and diagnose and treat them to the degree that we can. And I think we own more of that than we have. And I think that's, that's the one thing, if, if everybody wants to take something away, is take a look in the mirror and go, look, can I be better at knowing and understanding these diseases? Can I be better at how to manage these patients and understanding the pharmacology? And, and, and they are our lane, so why don't we get better at it? Well, you had me worried there for a second when you said take your foot off the dock. I'd you clarified it was D-O-C-K and not the D-O-C. I was concerned that we were having some uh, interprofessional violence, but um, you talked about, I think the environment is, is important, you, and you kind of got at that with the hallway, but you know, the emergency department is designed well for acute evaluation and stabilization 24-7, 365. It is not a great environment for long-term care uh, in terms of long-term habitation. Um, and we've seen that with our, the boarding situation. If, if you've got a borders, if you've got borders in your emergency department, go into that room at night and tell me how well you could sleep. Um, you know, I'm one of those people that could sleep any, about anywhere, anytime. But uh, like in my department, the intercoms in each of the rooms for every new patient that comes in, team triage at about 90 decibels, all day long, all night long, uh, you know, 100 and something times a day. Um, and then the noise, the light, especially uh, early morning hours when it does start to maybe slow down a little bit and you know staffs you know carrying on at, at the uh, desks and and talking with each other and just being human uh, but just think about that from a pediatric standpoint adolescent standpoint especially if you've got uh, significant anxiety stress paranoia uh, all of those things involved and you've got all these lights and sounds and activities and stress and um, you know the environment for emergency medicine can be incredibly difficult on behavioral health uh, patients, really for anybody, but uh, especially for behavioral health, especially when we're gonna say, you may be here for weeks or months. What are some of the things that folks can do to 
you know, not necessarily disrupt the overall flow of the department, but, you know, making it to where we aren't making the issue worse, just like you mentioned with putting them in the hallway with paper scrubs. Yeah, uh, and I think, Ryan, first of all, just acknowledging that, right? So taking the step back and go, what does this feel like from the patient perspective? Um, look, our, our jobs are hard, and, and what we do every day, you know, we, I, I think a lot of us are just trying to kind of survive our day. But I think if we lose sight of what it's like from the other side of the stretcher, uh, we're, we can't be as good as we could be. So I think just as you described, if you were to take a step, if you were to walk into the department and you hadn't been there every day, and you were just an objective observer, what would you see? And, and you would see that, like, who is, why is there a patient right there in front of the desk? And, and oh my God, li listen to the sound, listen to the noise, look at the, the beehive of behavior, and just, and think about, is that the right environment for that patient? Again, when we have trauma patients come in, right, we have a separate trauma room because it has the right resources for that patient. Right? And we've put all the right stuff in the right room and everybody knows where it is and everybody in that room knows their role. And yet for behavioral health and patients in crisis, we seem to kind of throw our hands up and go, well, we gotta keep them safe. Um, there are plenty of proven strategies of how to make rooms safe. Um, so you can have rooms that still have multi-purpose, but there are ways to make them safe so that the patients can't harm themselves when they're in there. There's lots of, I wanna say there's so many successful strategies out there, I think most of us don't know about them. And so I guess the other ask is, in addition to learning more about the illness, learning more about the pharmacology, is spend a little more time learning about what others have already been doing in terms of models. Um, uh, Les Sun and the, um, and the uh, uh, Scott Zeller and the empath units, there, there are lots of people who are really experts on this, who are creating solutions for us, um, but you gotta take the opportunity to learn. Just like you update yourself on every other, you know, what's going on with ultrasound, spend a little time to update yourself on what's going on with the care of patients with mental illness, and I think everybody will get more comfortable, and then you'll feel like, hey, this is my lane, these are my patients, um, wait a minute, I, I gotta tell somebody that we can do better than this. And if you develop, if you become that champion within your department, I think what you'll find is everybody else will nod up and down and go, oh my God, yes, we can do a better job. Uh, if you're willing to lead, I'm willing to follow and I'll, I'll, be, I'll help you make this better. And again, I think there's both a patient focus, there's a family focus, but then there's a selfish focus of you will make your department operationally more efficient. You will be able to get that next patient in from the waiting room with abdominal pain. You'll use less hospital resources, so your CFO will be very happy to know we're not just watching patients instead of taking care of them. So I think there's so much opportunity here um, to really make a huge difference in a lot of what we do in caring for all of our patients if we really kind of re-own and focus on these. So give us a little, any wrapping, closing thoughts, and then how we can get in touch with you. Yep, so I would say, again, these are our patients just like every other patient who comes in. This whole situation of mental illness and resources is now in the national highlight. So we have a window of opportunity to get those resources that we keep talking about don't exist, but we as the emergency physicians have to be one of the loudest voices because we see where the system is broken across the, across the spectrum. So be, be an advocate, be willing to learn more about how to take better care of these patients from our own perspective, but then to advocate for the community resources and the inpatient resources that they may need 
if we can't make them to the, get them to the point where they're appropriate to go home. But we have a lot of stuff that we can own internally and then externally we can advocate for those extra resources. Uh, happy to have, as you can tell, uh, I, I could talk about this, pretty passionate about this. Um, you can reach me at LACirillo, which is C-I-R-I-L-L-O at ASAP.org. Uh, and I'm on Twitter at, at Dr. Tony Cirillo. Um, happy to share, happy to be a resource, happy to, to help you become that champion in your ED, in your hospital, uh, to improve the care we provide to patients with mental illness. And thanks, Ryan. You jacked up the rubric. I mean, it's usually just a first, first initial, last name for the ASAP.org, but you got La Cirillo. I got La. La Cirillo. Well done. Well done. Yeah, I appreciate it, and thanks for your time. Happy to have you down here with us at uh, the Emerald Coast Conference, uh, formerly the Southeastern Conference ASAP. Um, uh, wonderful conference. If you haven't come down to this one, it's a great opportunity to enjoy some great discussions, some days on the beach, great family vacation, uh, a little bit of golf if you want it, uh, a little bit of humidity also if you like it. Um, actually, a whole lot of humidity even right here within the uh, little ballroom uh, foyer. Uh, the humidity is starting to pick up a fair amount. So, uh, but it's a great conference every beginning of June. I think next year, third, fourth, and fifth, or third through sixth, something like that. Uh, but uh, come on down, join us, and uh, happy to have you down here. And, and thanks once again. My pleasure. As for me, you can uh, contact me, rstanton at asap.org. So I, I fit the rubric, rstanton at asap.org at Everyday Med on Twitter. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been some ASAP Frontline. If you're not on the front lines, you're on the sidelines.